Welcome to Global Health and Childhood Cancer. I'm your host, Mark Zobeck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Okay, today we have a bit of a different topic than what we normally cover, because today we are talking about math, which is going to be amazing. Specifically, we are going to look at two simulation studies that were just published in the Lancet Journal. One estimated global pediatric oncology incidence, and the other estimated survival. These studies were performed by two researchers at Harvard and Boston Children's Hospital. The first was Jennifer Ye, who is an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and associate scientific researcher in the Division of General Pediatrics at Boston Children's Hospital. And the second researcher, who's the primary author of these papers, is Zachary Ward, who is a PhD student at the Center for Health Decision Science at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Both of these people are incredible. If you look at their CVs, they're just very impressive, and you can find those at the website. So we are going to discuss these two studies they just published, and the reason why I say we're going to talk about math is because, more so than other episodes, this gets a little bit technical in that we discuss how they went about modeling incidents and survival, because it seems like a daunting task. There's a lot that's unknown in the world about who has cancer and who survives their cancer. So it's easy to be skeptical with these studies that they're fancy and they're producing neat numbers, but how much can you really trust them? So we try to slowly walk through the model to try to make it make sense how they arrived at the numbers they produced and what are the assumptions embedded into the model. We're also going to look at the results of these studies and what they mean for health policy and planning interventions to improve care. Now, the results of these studies are striking. First of all, they're striking because they demonstrate that there are a lot more pediatric cancer patients around the world than we previously assumed, and we are not doing a good job of identifying most of them. And the survival statistics are striking because it's a vivid demonstration of the disparity of survival around the world. You know, it's said famously by Dr. Carlos Rodriguez Galindo that the most important prognostic factor of whether a child will survive their cancer is where he or she was born. And these studies make that statement real. So keep that in the back of your mind as you're listening to this discussion about how these numbers are produced and what they mean for the field of global oncology. All right, with that being said, let's go ahead and get to the discussion. Hey, everybody. I'm here with Zach Ward and Jennifer Ye, two decision scientists at Harvard, and we're going to talk about their recent Lancet papers that were just released regarding modeling the incidence and survival of global childhood cancer. These are incredible papers, so I've been really excited to talk to them about it. So why don't you both just introduce yourselves? Who are you? What do you do? And how did you get involved in this process? I'm Zach. I am finishing up my PhD here in health policy, concentrating in decision science. And uh, before I got into research, I used to do a lot of field work with community-based programs in East uh, Central Africa. And so I've always been interested in global health. And so now I'm, I'm interested in developing research methods to simulate, come up with computational approaches to try and solve some of these uh, global health problems. I'm Jennifer. Um, So I, a long time ago, did a study abroad program called Semester at Sea. And after that, I was just so excited to become, I thought, a physician. But then with time, I discovered what I was really interested in was more population health. And that led me to go back to school and to get a degree in health policy and decision science. So what I do is very similar to what Zach described as mathematical simulation modeling and using power modeling to really inform clinical guidelines and follow-up care and just kind of bring attention to some important population or public health issues. Very good. So you both have a broad range of interests. I know you've done research in other areas as well. So how did you get specifically involved in childhood cancer? Yes. So uh, most of my work when I was doing my PhD was in gastric cancer. And then when I finished that, then I started working on, so it was gastric cancer in the global sense. And we started working on gastric cancer in the U.S. And that's actually when Zach and I first started working together. But gastric cancer is less of a pressing issue in some sense because the incidence is declining over time. So there's this thought of that it's a problem that will go away with time. 
And I had talked to someone during my postdoc, and they had mentioned that childhood cancer was an area that not a lot had been done, and there's actually a lot of data on late out late effects associated with treatment. So I, you know, started looking into it, and I met with some folks over at the Dana Farber Cancer Institute. Um, I met Lisa Diller, who's the um, clinical director of pediatric oncology, and we just hit it off, and it was just a great marriage of the clinical perspective and the modeling methods and there's just so many interesting issues in childhood cancer that have really has led a lot of my research to gravitate towards that area. And I got pulled into this field by Jen. <laughs> and I saw, so Rifat Atun is also one of the commissioners for a, a Lancet commission on, on childhood cancer in developing countries that will be coming out hopefully soon. And I saw him in the hall one day and he said that he had a, a new project that would be interesting for me to work on. So I've sort of fallen into this field by accident. Yeah, and another person is, is uh, Lindsay Frazier. She's also at the Dana Farber, and she's a pediatric oncologist. And we ran into each other on a bus ride, and we've known each other for many years. But we kind of started talking about this commission and how it was coming together, and it's been pretty good. What's it called? Happenstance, when everything kind of comes together nicely. Yeah, so you talked to Rifat and Lindsay, and I guess through a few conversations said, hey, we need to put some numbers on uh, what's happening in childhood cancer, how many patients there are, and what survival is. Is that just? And then the rest is history? Yeah, basically. Yep. According to us, of course. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Well, that's awesome. We uh, appreciate you coming into this field and doing this work because, again, I think as the listeners will hear throughout this discussion, it's just been incredibly instructive. So there's two papers we're going to talk about today. The first is called Estimating the Total Incidence of Global Childhood Cancer, a Simulation-Based Analysis. And the second is called Global Childhood Cancer Survival Estimates and Priority Setting, a Simulation-Based Analysis. And the links to both of these papers will be listed on the website ghccpod.com, so you can go there and find the papers themselves, or at least the links to the journal Lancet. So, you know, for healthcare personnel, um, there's lots of smart people in healthcare, but there's a variable... Not everybody likes math. Not everybody likes numbers. And so we are going to take these papers one at a time and slowly so that we can kind of walk through the findings together. So even if you are somewhat math phobic, stick with us because there's a lot of useful insights to find here. Let's start with the incidence analysis. We're going to start with the main findings and what they mean. And then we're going to dig into your methods a little bit. So what were the main findings that you guys saw? So to put this a little bit in context, we were, for, for the commission, we were trying to estimate what the burden of childhood cancer is and then look at different strategies. So different policy interventions, either for increasing the amount of referral or increasing survival. But one of the, as I started digging into the data, I realized that we didn't have very good estimates on the number of childhood cancer cases in many countries. So there are only registries that cover about 10% of the world's population. And so we realized quickly that just going off of registry data wasn't going to get us very far. So we needed to come up with a way to estimate the number of cases by diagnosis for countries that we didn't have registry data for. So this got us thinking, and especially given our backgrounds, you know, from health systems, thinking of how do patients get entered in registries? Well, a lot of things have to go right for a child with cancer to have access to health care be referred to a specialist, and finally be accurately diagnosed and recorded in a registry. And so we started to think more about the health system and placing childhood cancer in this broader context. And so the main findings from this paper were that almost half, found that almost half of childhood cancer cases go undiagnosed globally, with a huge variation by region, which is what you'd expect. So we find that less than 3% about go undiagnosed in uh, high-income countries and places like Western Europe and North America, but that over half, almost 60% in like Western Africa, go undiagnosed. Yeah, and what were the total numbers that you estimated for incidents? So current estimates of global childhood cancer cases per year, based off of registry data, those numbers are at about 200,000 cases per year. And when we take into account health system barriers, we estimate that there's actually about 400,000 cases in the population. So our best estimates were undershooting the actual incidents by about half. By about half. Yeah, we find about 43% of cases were undiagnosed. So this 400,000 number, what age group does that include? So this is children 0 to 14 years old. Okay, so y'all did not look at 
say, 15 through 19-year-olds or 15 through 21, which are sometimes included in some estimates? No, we just looked at 0 to 14. So we defined childhood cancer. I think a lot of a lot of groupings are for 0 to 14. Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. From the actual experience of an oncologist, you know, we tend to treat cases up to 18, 21, depending on the type of diagnosis. So from the way I practically think about the total numbers, I say, okay, there's 0 to 14, and then there's this whole other population, which I would potentially see, or we as a field would potentially see that we are not accounted for. So that's just good to know as we think about the numbers. We'll have to do a follow-up paper then looking at older age groups. Yeah, that would be interesting because the types of cancers you tend to see in older age groups are different as well. And so we'll talk about the spread of cancers that you saw by region, but that would be interesting to see the the subsequent groups or the older groups. Okay, so we know we're estimating about 400,000 cases, more or less, per year of childhood cancer in the world. And then you projected that number out to 2030, which was within the time frame of the Sustainable Development Goals. So can you tell us a little bit about that, why you chose that time frame and what you found in terms of incidents and in terms of missing patients in that time? So 2030, we chose, as you said, because it aligns with the SDG goals. And the WHO also just released their Childhood Cancer Initiative, which aims to double survival by 2030. So we thought that that would be an interesting time point to look at. We find that the number of cases is pretty stable, but it's growing mainly in in Africa due to population growth, whereas it's pretty stable or declining in a lot of the other regions. And so how many total do you estimate we'll see from 2015 to 2030? So in total, we estimated that there were about, it was about 6 million, 6 to 7 million cases total between that period. And if the rates of access and referral, so if the rates of diagnosis stay as they are, we estimate that about 3 million cases will be missed, will go undiagnosed during that time period. Wow. So we would only know about, if we're saying 6.7 million, we're only going to know about, what, 3.7 million? So again, almost half of the cases, we're just not even going to diagnose? A little bit. Yeah. If things don't improve, in terms of of diagnosis rates. That's the sobering prediction that we find. Yeah. And then you also looked at variability by region as to uh, who's getting diagnosed. So what did you find when you dug down into the regional data? Mm -hmm. So we, to try to get regional estimates, I guess this goes a little bit into the methodology. So we used a lot of hierarchical models. And so those are a special type of model that lets you partially pool information so at one extreme, you can assume that every country is different. At the other extreme, you could assume that all countries within a region are the same, the exact same. And so a hierarchical model gives you some wiggle room in between there where you assume that countries within a region are more similar than countries that are in a different region. And so looking at the estimated incidence rates by region, pooling those, and then looking at what we know about health system barriers in different regions we're able to estimate how many cases were diagnosed and undiagnosed by region. And so we find, as you would expect, that countries with strong health systems catch almost all of the cases, whereas countries with very weak health systems, a lot of children go undiagnosed. So especially in sub-Saharan Africa, we find that the majority of cases actually are not being diagnosed. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more about how that broke out regionally in Africa? So we find that East and West Africa each are about the same. So about, you know, over half, about 50% of cases undiagnosed. We find in North Africa, better diagnosis. And then in South Africa as well, better rates of diagnosis. But, but we found different patterns of, of diagnosis types by region as well. So especially Burkitt's lymphoma in East and West Africa and retinoblastoma contribute to a lot of these uh, cases that are not being diagnosed. Yeah, about the types. I thought that was a pretty striking finding that not only was there a regional difference in West Africa, like you said, Burkitt lymphoma drives a lot of that, which isn't a surprise with the interplay between malaria and EBV and how that drives the pathogenesis of Burkitt lymphoma. But you also found more lymphomas, more kidney tumors, and more retinoblastoma. Is that correct? Yep. Okay. And in your exploration about why that might be, did you dig into that at all as to whether or not your physician stakeholders were surprised by that and what they thought by that finding? I mean, we know that retinoblastoma is a strong genetic component. So that gives some some biological plausibility for that. For renal tumors, we've been talking about hepatitis rates and other reasons for that, but we didn't do too much digging into some of the reasons why. So I think that's sort of the next stage is, is some hypothesis generating. Sure. Yeah. 
Not only in Western Africa did you find that the tumor types were different, but you also found that the incidence rates themselves, say West Africa compared to a high-income country, was different as well. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found? Yeah, so we found, as we've said, higher incidence rates for some of these cancers, but then also lower incidence rates for ALL, for example. And that, that's one of the, I guess, one of the stories for how we got involved in this, too, is I, was, I knew I was going to be involved in this commission. I saw a news article saying that there were ALL was basically non-existent in poor countries, especially sub-Saharan Africa. And I thought, well, I don't, maybe there's other reasons to think that, but lack of data should not be your, uh, should not be a basis for generating hypotheses. And so we do find after correcting for underdiagnosis that ALL has lower incidence, we estimate lower incidence, but it, it could also be because we're not fully accounting for differential underdiagnosis by malaria, for example. So we take into account access and referral, we don't have enough data to really take into account differential underdiagnosis by, by symptoms or by diagnosis type when children actually show up to a clinic. I see. So the point from that is that you found that the ALL rates were higher than expected given how you adjusted for the different variables in the model? Well, we found that they're much higher than is commonly assumed or has been commonly assumed. We found that they're still a little bit lower than in other regions. Yeah. But for, for a lot of these areas, there wasn't an estimate before. Yeah, for a lot so, of countries. So our, our estimates for West Africa, for example, there's only two countries that we had registry data for, for West Africa. Yeah, I see. So there was a so lot. So some of it being a higher estimate is, could just be because there were no estimates before versus it being a higher estimate. Yeah, right. Because we were just relying on anecdote and people's experiences prior to that time. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. And then the other striking thing to me when I was looking over the data in West Africa and in East Africa is that some of the incidences are incredibly high compared to other regions. Like we said, Burkitt lymphoma is just unbelievably high. It's what the incidence rates here are 50 per million versus the rest of the world is in the zero to four per million range. And so that also was just striking to me that the, the distribution is so disproportionate in certain areas, in ways that I think, I don't know if anyone would have expected the degree of disproportionateness that like Burkitt lymphoma showed, for instance. Yeah. And I think we have a good understanding of why that might be the case. And again, with Kaposi sarcoma in East Africa, we found really high incidence compared to other regions. Yeah. And again, I think we know probably why, why that's happening. Right. So we briefly covered this earlier, that you projected out to 2030, the expected number of incident cases. But can you tell us what trends you saw and how, how cancer might change over the next 15 years? Mm -hmm. So mainly due to population trends in Africa, we find that that's the continent really that's going to be driving the total number of cases globally. And because of the different distribution of diagnoses, that lymphomas especially are going to increase globally. But we find pretty stable or declining trends in terms of number of cases in, in all the other regions. So... Right. You have a little graph here in figure six, and it shows cases on the y-axis, cases per year, and years on the x-axis, and trend lines for the different areas. And the only trend line you have increasing is Africa. And the rest of the lines are either stable or decreasing. So, right, what you're saying is that the number of cases per year diagnosed in Africa are going to be increasing over the next decade and a half. And I, I understand you to say that's mainly due to demographic factors just from the population growth itself. Yes. Yeah, so we assume that age-specific incidence rates remain constant over time in the model. So the, the change in number of cases is just due to the population at risk. Gotcha. And this actually didn't quite match my intuition when I first read it, because I kind of assumed that the world as a whole was going to have in an increasing population. But the other regions like Asia, Latin America, and the Caribbean, Europe, North America, all of those have a a flat line, meaning that the number of incident cases is not increasing by year. So again, is that driven by demographic factors or is the world population just not growing? And so that's why we see this in your model? Yeah, well, we find the number of children aged 0 to 14 is pretty stable or declining in a lot of these regions. So again, a lot of the population growth is, is due to uh, high fertility in Africa. I see. So again, to review the major findings from this study, I just want to say what we've uncovered so far is that you estimate there are about 400,000 cases of childhood cancer, ages 0 to 14, in each year in the world. 
And that's contrary to the best prior estimates, which was somewhere around 200,000. So we were shooting 50% lower. So you also estimate that something like 50%, technically 43%, but we'll say 200,000 cases are not diagnosed each year. And that, that varies regionally as to who is missed. But you found in, say, West and East Africa, something around 50, 55% of cases are missed. And in South and Southeast Asia, around 50% of cases are missed as well. And then you projected out that there's going to be about 6.7 million cases by 2030, from 2015 to 2030, I should say. And about 3 million of those will go undiagnosed. So we are missing a huge, huge proportion of the potential patient population that we, the global oncology community, want to care for. And I think something we didn't say, but something that I had written down here earlier, was that 92% of the cases that you found are in low- and middle-income countries, which I think the catchphrase for most of us in this field say that greater than 80% of kids uh, with cancer live in low- and middle-income countries. So that also is quite a bit more than what was previously assumed. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so those so those are the main findings that we're looking at. And now let's go into the methodology because this was a big undertaking. As you said at the beginning of our talk, there's not a whole lot of good data in a lot of these regions and in a lot of the regions that we care about, such as West Africa. And so how did you dig down to estimating the incidents? Where did you even start? We started with the registry data. That was the best data we had to date. So we knew that any model that we built had to make predictions that were consistent with the number of diagnosed cases in the registries. So taking that as our starting point, we started to work upstream and consider factors that keep children from being diagnosed. What registries were those that you took into account? Mm -hmm. So these are registries from IARC, from the IICC3 registries. So we have registries for about, I think, 70 countries. And so we have about 10,000 targets, we call them. So that those are age and diagnosis-specific incidence rates. I see. So only 77 countries, and you ended up estimating somewhere around 200 countries. Yeah. So we had to figure out a way to impute data or to figure out what the incidence was for nearby countries based on data that were available. Okay. And just before we move on from this, did you look at the methodology of the IICC and adjust that at all? Or did you just take whatever was in that registry as a given for those countries? Yeah, we just assumed that those were observed data and then tried to apply a model to correct for the upstream factors. I gotcha. So these were the data points that you used to train your model, so to speak, to teach it uh, how to impute the unknown incidence rates for, or the, the incidence rates from the other countries that don't have them. Yep. Great. Okay. So we started with the registries and then where did you go from there? So from registries, we estimated, so we we made an assumption that for each diagnosis, there's some underlying incidence rate that is going to be similar for similar countries. And so the idea behind this is that because childhood cancer is mainly driven by genetic factors, I mean, with Burkitt's lymphoma, there are some obvious examples of environmental exposures making a difference. But unlike adult cancers where there's a large behavioral component and you have to keep track of, you know, somebody's occupational exposures or whether they've been a smoker for 40 years. Childhood cancer is more random, and so it's it's easier to model in that sense and that we can assume that countries that are nearby probably have a similar genetic makeup and probably a similar risk of childhood cancer. And so making that assumption in the model let us estimate underlying regional incidence rates for all of these diagnoses. And so we use the registry data just to set what are called prior probability distributions. And so that's a Bayesian term, meaning you just stating what your degree of belief is for something before you've seen any data. And so based off of the registry data, we could get a general sense of which diagnoses have higher incidence compared to other diagnoses within a given region. And so with that, then we started to add other variables into the model. And so working our way upstream through the health system. So we had to look at other sources of data for that. And so we use data from the DHS or the Demographic and Health Surveys. So these are nationally representative household surveys that have data available for, I think, over 90 countries. And so we looked at what's the probability that children in a given country, given their urban or rural status, have access to, to primary care and are referred. And so we use proxy indicators looking at like antenatal care coverage 
or vaccination coverage, which are often used as a proxy for healthcare access, and then looking at indicators for referral or for health-seeking behavior given the recognition of a problem. And so for these, we looked at diarrheal treatment. That's great. So, so what you really just described to us is the way the model that you used to approximate the incidence rates in these countries where there, where we don't have any numbers. And you have this great figure in the paper. It's figure one. So you have this box way over on the left, the incident cases, which seems to be what we actually want to estimate. And one of the things that you used to assess that, like you said, were the population genetics. And so I guess that brings in the regions we've been talking about. And let me clarify this. So say West Africa, you just assumed that the region defined as West Africa in your model is populated by people who will all have similar underlying genetics and therefore kind of similar genetic predispositions to cancer. Is that what you said? Yeah. So that we have to make some of these assumptions to help right. us fit the model to reduce the number of parameters that we need. Yeah. So that was one of the assumptions was regional homogeneity in the populations. Okay. Sort, no, sort population. of, yeah, as a, as a central tendency. So we do have country-specific stochastic terms mm-hmm. that we look. So there is some wiggle room for countries within a region to be different. But to get that center the central tendency for the region, we we do fit the regions first. I see. And country-level stochastic terms being the amount of variability that you see within a certain country. Yeah, compared to the region as a whole. Got it. Okay. So there is some variability as you drill down by country. Did you go intra-country as well, like regional within the country? No, we didn't have data. For a lot of countries, we didn't have data on regionals. I gotcha. So that was the first step was to assume this underlying similarity in the biology or in the genetics rather. And then you said, okay, we need to model the health system. And the way you modeled the health system was access to primary care through this DHS data. And so how did you assure that the access to primary care kind of indicators that you were using correlated to being meaningful in terms of applying to pediatric oncology patients? Yeah, that's a good question. So these are not cancer-specific indicators. They're just general health system indicators. And so when we fit the model to cancer-specific outcomes, sometimes these probabilities were revised to model calibration. And so we put prior probability distributions on all of these inputs, and then we ran the model millions of times on a cluster looking for combinations of these that were consistent with our prior knowledge and that also yielded predictions that were similar to the registry data. And so we're not using cancer-specific health system indicators, but we expect that they're going to be pretty similar to the general health system indicators. But then we're just selecting parameters out that yield a good fit to the cancer registry data. So you had a computer and you put these variables of access to care into your model with the incident cases and you ran it, you said, 10,000 times? So we run it. Yeah. So we set up, it's an algorithm called simulated annealing, which is a stochastic optimization algorithm, and then combined with a gradient descent. So more of a deterministic algorithm within each of those. It gets a little bit complicated, but basically it lets you either take steps around your parameter space or, or make jumps around your parameter space. And so we run this on a big cluster computer for a couple of days. So we set up 10,000 different search chains, and then each search chain will give you the best parameter set that it's found at the end. And then from those, we took the best 100 parameter sets that were found overall. And what do you mean by a search chain? So a search chain would be a sequence of steps around the parameter space that's evaluated with respect to your targets. All right. And the parameter space in this instance being how well access to primary care from your variables map to the countries that we know about from the IACC data. Is that correct? So that would be the, the goodness of fit score or calibration score that, that tells you how well your current parameters fit the data. So the parameter space is pretty large because we have country and diagnosis specific and age specific incidence rates. We have country specific and urban and rural specific access and referral rates. And so we're looking at hundreds and thousands even of, of parameters that we have to to fit. So it, it takes a while to evaluate all of these different combinations. 
So you have a bunch of combinations and you run it through a supercomputer and you pick out which ones best map into the model of the incidence rates for the countries that you know about. Yeah. So we want the diagnosed cases in our model to look like the number of diagnosed cases that we see in the registry. Got it. Okay. So that was, so again, we went from incident cases on the box all the way to the left of figure one to access primary care as one of the elements in your model. And then another element in your not model is appropriate referral. So not only does the kid get cancer and then get into the medical system, but then the medical system recognizes the cancer and refers them for treatment. That's kind of what your model is trying to represent. And how did you represent this in your data? Yeah. So the referral in this point is not for treatment. I mean, it, it's more, mainly for referral to receive a diagnosis. I so see. in a lot of these countries, the primary care that they'll receive is maybe from community health worker or if it's a local clinic they go to and they don't have the expertise or the technology to really make a diagnosis. And so often they'll have to go to a specialist center to actually be diagnosed. So there, it's that link in the, in the referral chain that we're modeling right. for referral here. And then that was the link that you modeled was with referral for diarrheal uh, disease treatment? Yeah. So that was sort of the best indicator that we could find of acting on health-seeking behavior given that you've recognized that you've had a problem. Got it. And is there a way for you to explain how well that indicator fit in your model? Because to me, without going through some of the fine-grained statistical analysis that you're describing, it's not a clear mapping of, oh, diarrheal disease referral and cancer referral would be in any way similar, except that there's a medical system there which is making referrals. So is there a a way you kind of assessed how well that indicator performed? So we looked to see how often, so given our conceptual model, you see that these boxes are getting smaller. So we would assume that referral should be a smaller probability than access in total. And so we looked just generally at the indicators to see how often that was the case. And we found that almost, you know, 90% of the time that that it was smaller than access. So we knew we were generally in the right conceptual space. But again, this was just to set rough priors. So we know that referral is going to be pretty high in places like Canada or the US, and we know it's going to be pretty low uh, in places like Sub-Saharan Africa. And so using these proxy indicators gives us a way to quantitatively take that into account. But the prior set were pretty wide, and so we relied pretty heavily on calibration to actually narrow down what that probability was for childhood cancer. I think another aspect of the study that's really interesting is that we're using data that was comparable because it was collected for multiple countries. So maybe for a specific country, you could find better um, referral rates for pediatric cancer. But we wouldn't have those for a good handful of countries, and what we really want to do was have comparable data, which would allow us to then incorporate into a model and estimate the global burden. Okay, so with this model in hand, how did you go about, or I don't know, what was the next step? So the next step, well, after calibration is we have this set of parameter sets, right? And then it's making the predictions. So then it's it's taking those parameter sets and running the model under different scenarios. So making predictions into the future and estimating some of the main findings that we've talked about. So like how many cases are undiagnosed in each country? Okay, so we have a rough understanding of the model, and I will admit that the math quickly escapes me, I suppose. So your description of the model is making sense, but we've talked about a lot of assumptions that you had to embed into the model to actually arrive at the numbers that we talked about. So in your estimation, what were the biggest risks or areas of weakness to your model that may represent some error in the numbers that you produced? Mm-hmm. So we try to take into account uncertainty at all steps in the model. So if you look at the uncertainty ranges around our estimates, a lot of them are pretty wide. But probably the biggest threat to validity is the the small number of data points in some regions. So like we've said, in West Africa, there were only two, two registries that we used to fit the model for that region. So using hierarchical models, we were able to borrow some information from other countries in Africa or from other low income countries. And so that can give us a better sense. It can help us to refine our estimates. But at the end of the day, if you don't have a lot of data to fit to your model, it is is either going to give you very wide uncertainty or be biased. And so we aimed to try and steer the narrow route in between those, trying to provide informative estimates that don't have too much uncertainty around them. But, But more data would certainly be the next 
the, the easiest way to, to make these estimates better. Okay, so we briefly described the process that you went through, which I know you describe it at length in a something like a 300-page supplement that you have to accompany the paper. I know that we're not going to completely exhaust your methodology here in this conversation, but um, hopefully the listeners have taken away the fact that it seems that you were very careful with how you modeled the process of getting cancer and then getting into a registry and imputing that into unknown countries. And then you were very thoughtful with every step along the way of uncertainty because, again, not having the same level of training, it's easy to see or easy to be afraid that uncertainty just propagates throughout this process. But it sounds like each step along the way, you were able to accommodate that uncertainty and take it into account to give you some meaningful estimates. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Okay, great. And so with these findings now, as you were discussing it in your paper, what are the implications of saying, okay, we've, we are significantly underdiagnosing patients and there's significant variability within different regions of the world as to how many patients there are who will have cancer? What were the implications from that or what do you think are the next steps? So there's certainly policy implications for thinking about childhood cancer and for evaluating whether targets have been met. So now you have to think about when we're talking about survival, are we talking about survival for diagnosed cases or are we talking about overall survival considering all of the cases of childhood cancer? So I think probably the biggest implication is is raising that question now or injecting that question into all of the discussions we have about childhood cancer is what population of cases are we talking about and what can we do from a health systems perspective, to try and increase the number of cases that are being diagnosed. So it's, it's taking clinical oncology and putting it in the health systems context. And so if we really want to make a dent in childhood cancer in a lot of these countries, we're going to have to improve survival, which we'll talk about later for diagnosed cases, but we also need to be diagnosing more children in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I remember my reaction when first reading the abstract of this paper was that, you know, I don't think we speak about this enough in the field that this is a public health catastrophe. Surveillance systems, registries, getting people into care, and then keeping people in care is the majority of morbidity and mortality within oncology. And so not paying attention to the half the population of patients that aren't even being diagnosed is a huge gap in this field. And it doesn't necessarily take, say, better therapeutics. It takes a system to try to capture these kids and give them the care that they need. So this paper spoke volumes to me in terms of the need for policy, the need for public health, and the need for kind of country-level or regional solutions to strengthening healthcare systems to find these patients. So I think what you said is right on to how I am feeling. So yeah, any other thoughts about this paper before we move on? No, I don't think so. All right, great. So that being said about the incidence paper, let's move on. Now, you also simulated survival worldwide, which seems like a huge task in and of itself. So you went from how many patients there are in a given year in the world to how many patients survive in every single place that pediatric cancer patients are treated all around the world. Well, first, let's just walk through the process real quick. Like, How did you go about tackling this issue? So this is the second half of the model. So the first half was incidents, how many patients are being diagnosed. And then the second half is what happens to patients after they are diagnosed. And so here we're following patients from the point of diagnosis through to five-year net survival is our outcome. And so in general, we used a similar process where we have some observed data from countries. So this is observed five-year survival from Concord, Concord 2 and 3, which has about much less data, about 500 targets for us to fit the model to. And so we looked through, or we modeled again a cascade, a care cascade of what has to happen for a child to achieve five-year survival. And so we looked at availability of treatment, if they abandon treatment, if they can complete treatment, and then also what the quality of treatment is in each of these countries. Well, what was the model that you used? So we start with for each diagnosis, we estimated what we call maximum achievable survival. And so this is based off of recent estimates from SEER. And so we assume that SEER is basically the highest survival you can get. And we inflate that by a couple of percentage points. So we let the model search a little bit higher because there's probably room to improve in a lot of places in the U.S. still. 
Conditional on that, we then estimated what's the probability that you have access to chemotherapy, radiotherapy, general surgery, neurosurgery, or ophthalmic surgery for retinoblastoma. And so for each diagnosis, we defined, we call it a treatment modality matrix. So it's for each diagnosis, what treatment modalities do you need to achieve five-year survival for that? And so we use data from previous Lancet commissions, looking at radiotherapy and general surgery. And then we also used country-specific data on availability of chemotherapy and these other surgical specialties from different sources. Similarly, looking at probability of abandonment, there's some papers in the literature based on survey data. And then again, we put this through a big calibration process where we put prior distributions on all of these parameters and then run it on the cluster so that we can find combinations that yield five-year survival in our model that's consistent with what we see in the registry data. Similar to our discussion about your incident model, you found different indicators that can help you see or help you assess what the maximum achievable survival was. You said that was SEER. And then what treatment modalities are available in a given region. And you said you looked at that through a literature search. And then also you assessed quality of care that patients were given through the lens of treatment abandonment and which socioeconomic factors or which factors could predisposed to treatment abandonment. And then all of that you use, you plugged into your model, you said, and you use that to model survival. Yeah, that gives us a calibrated model where we can estimate what's currently happening now. And so that was our, our first step was estimating what's currently happening now. And that's where we make that map in the paper to show what five-year survival is overall by country. Yeah. And so what did you find? So we find survival varies, uh, you know, a lot uh, depending on where you are. So we found that globally, it's about 37%, but with large variation. So ranging from like less than 10%, let's say 8% in Eastern Africa to over 80% in North America. So you find like a tenfold difference in the overall survival rates. Wow. That is, again, fairly breathtaking. And these, remember, these are among diagnosed cases. So this is conditional on being diagnosed. Right. So if you take into account the fact that, you know, half of children in some of these countries are not being diagnosed, survival is much lower even. Absolutely. You take into account the, what we said, 50% that aren't being diagnosed. And then in some of these countries, 8% are surviving their treatment. So that's of the diagnosed patients, right? Yep. Yeah. So the vast majority are not surviving their cancer. I think it's uh, particularly striking too, because there's quite a few diagnoses that can be treated or have high survival rates with just chemotherapy. So even the you know, the resources needed aren't that intense. There's a real potential for improving the outcomes. Right. Yeah. That's interesting to say, you know, there's a world in which these patients easily survive their cancer. It's not like they have one that's untreatable. And so the reason that they aren't getting the treatment that they need is not because we don't know how, it's because it's just not being given to them. Nicely put. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that's, that's compelling for us about how to frame global health in general and childhood cancer specifically, that it's not a limitation in technology or a limitation in biomedical knowledge that these kids are not receiving treatment. It's just we cannot put the puzzle pieces together to get them the treatment that they need and also identify them like in the other paper. So yeah. I think for a lot of the diagnoses, even the chemotherapy drugs are generics. I mean, of course, there's new ones that have been coming out, but many of them are generics that um, would be ideally accessible. Right. And they're really, really old. And uh, they've been around forever. So we're very familiar with them as a field. And they're just not always available. And so, so you were able to put a number to different regions in the world as to the five-year survival. So on average, if you include everywhere in the world, there's about a 37% survival. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. And then you looked at interventions to increase survival. What interventions did you evaluate and how did you assess whether or not it would help improve survival? Yeah. So we, we have our calibrated model. So we have estimates of chemotherapy availability for each country or of radiotherapy availability. So our interventions were looking at what happens if you take this single intervention or this single policy and increase it to the average of high-income countries. So we know that there's a big disparity between chemotherapy availability between low-income countries and high-income countries, what would happen if we increased chemotherapy availability so that every country was at least at the level of a high-income country? 
And so we did this for all of the different parameters or all the different treatment modalities in the model and estimated what survival would be in that counterfactual scenario. So we looked at chemotherapy, radiation, general surgery, neurosurgery, and ophthalmic surgery. And then we also looked at reducing abandonment and quality of care. And so we first looked at all of these individually. What happens if you only focus on one of these things? And, and so we found that you actually get pretty limited improvements because there are so many interdependencies in treatment or there's so many interdependencies in achieving a good outcome that simply increasing the availability of chemotherapy doesn't improve global survival by that much if you're not also addressing abandonment, if you're not also improving quality of care, like providing adequate nutritional support so that children can actually tolerate these treatments. And so the bottom line from this analysis was that you really need to address all these barriers to high quality care simultaneously. Then you get multiplicative or synergistic effects. It's not going to be enough to just focus on on one aspect of care. Right. So it's not just making chemotherapy available and leaving everything else the same. And it's not just adding some surgeons or even addressing abandonment in and of itself. Like you're saying that your analysis found that you have to bundle them all together to find that you can move the needle. Right. So we found that looking at these interventions independently, that improving quality of care has the biggest impact out of the single policy interventions. And that improves survival by about seven percentage points globally. So from 37 to 44%, which is a pretty big relative improvement, but it's nowhere near what's achievable in high income countries. And so when you look at bundling interventions together, we found that expanding treatment access, so ensuring that availability of treatment modalities is, is that they're available, we found that that increases a survival to about 54%. But you, if you don't also address abandonment and quality of care, you're not going to achieve high survival or survival that's achievable in, in high-income countries. And so how high were we able to push the survival when you bundled them together? Yeah, we found that if if all countries could essentially become high-income countries, or at least perform at the same level as high-income countries on all of these aspects of care, then you could get up to 80% survival. So you could basically close the gap. But we found that if you just close the gap on all of these by 50%, so just close it halfway, you can get up to about 54%, 53% survival, which is about the same as you would get if you just close the gap for ensuring that all these treatments were available. And so it seems that if you make small improvements uh, across a wide range of these aspects that you can lead, you can get to better outcomes faster. Right. And from what you described earlier, it seems to be less of a linear relationship and more of some sort of additive relationship that there's more improvement in survival the with each kind of unit of or each different type of intervention that you improve, adding chemotherapy, adding surgery, improving quality of care results in a better survival increase than each of those added by themselves. Is that correct? Yeah. So there's synergistic effects or multiplicative effects going on. And again, it goes back to this idea of competing risks. If you solve one problem, there's still going to be another potential problem in the in the treatment chain. And so you really have to address all of them simultaneously. Yep. That makes sense. Okay. And so besides that mortality is high in a lot of places and that bundling interventions improve survival, were there any other takeaways that you had from the paper? So one is what would be an achievable target for survival? So WHO has said they want to achieve 60% survival by 2030. And so what we're looking at now is, is that really a feasible goal? And what would it take to achieve that? So I think that that kind of when that was the WHO target. And in some ways, are, you know, it's, it's a great number that you're going to reduce the number or what is it, increased survival to 60%. But thinking that there will be resources invested and, you know, there's a lot of excitement to actually reach that goal to ma- make sure that it's actually an achievable goal kind of goes hand in hand with being able to, that the investment is worth it. So, you know, you don't want to set up a target that's not feasible. So we were thinking that with modeling, you kind of evaluate what might be a feasible target and would make sense for these countries to really strive towards versus something that could be more of a pie in the sky. I see. And then also, it seems like this 
kind of points a way to a navigable path to that target. For instance, you don't want to invest all the money just in drug availability, but perhaps looking at drug availability and care quality and abandonment, that those would have more of an effect than just trying to put your finger on the scale on one of these issues. Right. In terms of identifying priorities and yeah. uh, for, for policy interventions, yeah, a broader view is going to have much more impact. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's an important point. The broad view seems to be the way to go, which I think fits a lot of people's preconceived notions of the best way to improve care. And if you look at the literature that's out there of different places that have demonstrated significant improvements of care, it seems to be that the interventions were bundled interventions of quality in the hospital, treatment abandonment, chemotherapy availability. So that fits my priors, as you said in terms of what is an effective intervention. So that's very satisfying. <laughs> okay, so I think we've reached the end of our time together. Is there anything else that we didn't discuss? I don't think so. I think we covered yeah. the main points. Yeah, okay. you did a nice job walking us through all the analyses and okay. highlighting the key points. Yeah, well, I appreciate y'all's time. I think that this work is incredible. And again, it's it's something that a lot of physicians and healthcare personnel, me included, struggle to completely wrap our minds around about how you model these two target variables, this incidence and survival, given how much uncertainty there is about the numbers. But y'all have done a great job of making it both accessible to the broader global oncology community and making it meaningful, setting it within a uh, framework that gives us some ideas about how to make these numbers useful. And I think there's going to be a lot more discussion about these numbers in the future. So your work is incredibly important. So thank you both. Oh, thanks. Yeah, thank good to you. hear. All right. If anybody wants to get in touch with you, is there an easy way for them to do that? Yeah, my email is probably the easiest way to get in touch with me. Okay. Um, we'll have that on the website, ghccpod.com. If you go to the post page for this episode, then you can find Zach's email and tell him how awesome his analysis is. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Sounds great. Well, thank you both again. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks. Mark.